Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, good evening and Merry Christmas. Uh, my name's Pastor Jim. I'm the lead pastor here at Journey Church. For those of you who aren't familiar with our church, uh, guests, relatives, and visitors, we're so glad. Welcome to our living room here this evening. Um, I'm sure that by now, and we, we queued it up that way, that you would get the, the obvious Christmas theme of light in darkness. And you know that scripturally, that is a very fitting metaphor, very deeply biblical metaphor for the Christ's mass. When the church gathers to remember and celebrate the incarnation, we're doing it both tonight as well as tomorrow morning in reflecting on who Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is. Um, you know that Christ has come. He called himself the light of the world. And we would like to think that the coming of Christ, with the coming of Christ, that all darkness has been banished in our world. And yet we know by experience that there is still darkness in this world. I call it the darkness around. And the darkness around is very obvious. Um, wars, crime, addiction, stock market crashes. If you're, you've tasted any of that in the recent months, it doesn't feel real good. It's not the most serious thing, but it kind of is an emotional trigger. Pandemics, conspiracy theory, uh, political division in our country. So many things that we could put under that heading of the darkness around. But tonight I'm about to ruin your evening. And I'm going to do it this way. By telling you that there's a far more dangerous darkness than the darkness out there. And it is the darkness in here. And I am infected with it. And here's where I'm going to ruin your evening. So are you. I don't know what kind of culture you were brought up in and, and been taught that you really need to be told that you are actually a very good person and that you are, will then live up to your, your potential or, or what they told you. And yet in your quiet moments, can you not see the seeds of darkness within yourself that continue to trip you up that continue to undermine your life, your relationships, your marriage, your family. It's the darkness within. This is what Jesus said after that very wonderful and famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Just two verses later, he said these words, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And this is not speaking just to those first century people who rejected Jesus. This is talking about me. And I might not be as bad as I could possibly be, but the seeds of that wickedness are absolutely a part of me and my story. Are they a part of yours? Tonight, in order to explore, explore this a little bit deeper, I want to actually take you in, back into the nativity account, but scene two. And, and the reason why I call it scene two is because it happened several months, perhaps even years, after 
the birth of Jesus. It's still in Bethlehem in Jerusalem, but it's quite a bit afterwards. I'm not going to go into all the reasons why we know that it's a couple months to a couple years, but suffice it to say, it's, it's quite some time, but it's connected in Matthew's gospel. And it's called the visit of the wise men from the east. I'm going to read to you the scripture and we'll take a few breaks and talk about what's going on in the text. So this is what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So two questions. Number one, who are these wise men from the east? And secondly, what is the star that they saw. So first off is this, the wise men, the word in the Greek there in, the, in Matthew's gospel is magos, where we get the word magi, magic, magical, magician. Um, these were the names given by the Babylonian, Babylonians, Medes, and Persians for their teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, astronomers, seers, interpreters of dreams, soothsayers, and sorcerers. So who are these wise men? Well, uh, to put it in some of our more familiar uh, ideas, think shaman, think medicine man, think witch doctor, think uh, druid. Uh, I know everyone's not, not a Star Wars fan. I think Jedi. They kind of carry their... Uh, Lucas is trying to spin that picture of these sagely wise, powerful individuals in that. Think Think Merlin in the legend of Arthur, the king of England. Okay, this was the wise wisdom givers. And they were known for several things. They were considered the educators and experts in science, astronomy, philosophy, history, agriculture, medicine, theology, politics, and the occult. These weren't like really squeaky clean guys. They were dabbling in some things that we are not supposed to dabble in, and yet that's the wisdom, the knowledge that they had. Secondly, they were also the gatekeepers of political power. Like Samuel the prophet, God's true prophet, as he anointed Saul and David at various times, saying, this is the king. Um, like a, a more secular version of that, but, but uh, power brokers nonetheless, the Roman Senate, or uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin, made up of 70 leaders, deciding great matters and who was going to lead the nation. They were the gatekeepers to, to crowns and thrones. So these magi were, were actually kingmakers from the east. My personal guess doing the study is that they were from Babylon. My personal guess is that they were heavily influenced by Daniel the great man of God, the great prophet of God, 500 years prior during the Babylonian exile. He rose to the very top and, and ruled and, and served under four to five different kings in Babylon. And God gave him great power and influence, and this would have ex exposed Babylonians to the Jewish scriptures. So it's quite possible that these wise men are very familiar with the prophecies concerning the coming of a Messiah through the Jewish people, that they were even looking for the sign of Messiah. And in that looking, God gave them a 
light, a star. And we don't know. Many have tried to explain this, and they've tried to look at astronomy and say, could it have been Jupiter or the alignment of Jupiter and Venus, those kinds of things. We don't know. Quite likely, God gave them a very special manifestation of his glory. For this would not have been the first time, nor would it have been the last time, that God gave them a special manifestation of his light and his glory. Uh, Think back to Moses on Sinai. In the top of the mountain, there's flashes of lightning and peals and thunder. And when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, his face is shining. For 40 years through the desert wanderings, God led the people of Israel with what was called the Shekinah. Pillar of cloud by day to shade them and a pillar of fire by night to guide them, to warm, warm them and to protect them. And then later on in, the, in the, the ministry of Jesus, there was the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John up on Mount Hermon. And Jesus' face and his clothing began to shine and glow, so much so that they are overwhelmed. And then finally, and not the only examples, but just uh, cherry-picking these, Saul of Tarsus, before his conversion, on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians is blinded with a light from heaven, a great and glorious manifestation of God's glory and power. These wise men saw a star, a light. And I want you to think about this. Even though that they were spiritually far from God, they were not spiritual insiders. They were not Jews. They were not the ones that had the scriptures. They dabbled in very dark things like the occult and sorcery, and yet when they saw the light of God, their hearts turned and they chased that light. May their tribe increase. While coming to Jerusalem with perhaps a very large retinue, very large, these were very important people. And I know a lot of of mythology is mixed in with this. There was far, perhaps far more than three And according to the accounts, they are asking anyone and everyone persistently throughout Jerusalem with the coming of such a great sign, triggering uh, the the, the birth or or depicting or uh, declaring the birth of this great king. They assumed that the people in Jerusalem would be interested and have knowledge, and yet no one has knowledge. So word gets around to this individual called Herod the king. And the question of where is he who is born king of the Jews gets Herod's attention. This is what it says. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. So who is Herod? Why is he troubled? Well, there's several Herods mentioned in the New Testament. This, uh, they're all from the same family line. But this is Herod the first, who we know as Herod the so-called great. Okay? He was the second son of Antipater, the Edomian, meaning he's not even Jewish. Herod is not Jewish. He's raised a Jew in Jewish territory and plays himself off as a Jew, but he's not a Jew. How did he do this? Well, very wise, crafty, opportunist. He built on his father's relationship with the Roman Senate and carved out a dynasty for himself out of virtually nothing. 
this powerful military general, crafty politician, after overthrowing the Hasmonean dynasty, which was in fact Jewish, um, he governed Judea with great skill. Many people actually loved him for it. Okay, listen to some of his accomplishments. In times of economic struggle, he returned the taxes to the people. Sounds like a good guy. During the great famine of 25 BC, he melted various gold objects in the palace down to buy food for the poor. He built theaters, racetracks, and other structures to provide entertainment. In 19 BC, he began the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He improved it and doubled its size. He built the, the fortress called Masada. He built the city of Caesarea and improved many cities in his region. But Herod also had a reputation for being suspicious, rash, violent, and cruel. But the Jews tolerated him. Why? Because he got things done. Because he's a man of action. Because he's a leader's leader. He's a man's man. And so they put up with him. He went by the title King of the Jews. It was given to him by the Roman Senate. But he was not the rightful King of the Jews. So when he heard the report of the wise men from the east asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? This got his full attention. And he wanted to know more. So he gathered the religious leaders and theologians of Jerusalem and asked them this. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and I'm just telling you where it's at, uh, Malachi 5.2, or Micah, sorry, Micah 5.2, and then it's quoted here in Matthew's Gospel, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Very specific prophecy concerning where Jesus would be born. And understand that Bethlehem is a very significant but very tiny village, even to this day. Can I tell you that there are over 300 such prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures concerning the coming of Messiah, all fulfilled in one man? If you've ever wondered, is Christianity a blind leap of faith? Is, is the scriptures reliable? Let me assure you, the scriptures are mathematically, statistically provable as nothing other than God's word itself, based on the prophecies alone fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Well, let's look on. We read here that Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child for when you have found him. Bring word to me. I too want to go and worship him. Was Herod actually a God follower? A false Jew, but actually really wanted to know the Lord also. Let's read on. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This Shekinah, as it were, reappears and parks itself right over a house in Bethlehem. And it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They, very, they, they, they were breathless overwhelmed with joy 
these pagan men from the east, far from God and his promises, are overwhelmed with joy when they realize who it is they're about to meet. And it says, going into the house, they saw the child with his mo- Mary, his mother, and these wise, powerful, grown men, it says, fell down and worshipped him. Now, stop just for a moment. Um, how old is he? One. One? Perfect. Can you imagine? Can you hold him up? Can you imagine wise men coming in and worshiping this little toddler? Baby Jesus. Toddler Jesus. The word for worship means to lie prostrate. And then they actually, it says that they actually did that. It means to actually kiss the hem or the hand. They're like, oh, if we can just kiss the hem of the child. They're overwhelmed and the scripture records that they open their gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and apparently a guitar. (laughs) Well, no, just for him. So he's fine. He's fine. It's, It's the living room, right? It's the family living room. Well, it says that after they worship him with these gifts, it says this, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now watch this. Something was off with Herod. Something was wrong with Herod. I call it the darkness within. That seed of darkness, that sinful spirit is blossoming in him and taking over. So much so that God himself has to interrupt their sleep in a dream and say, Get out of Dodge, but do not go back to that man. And he's not the only one. The the wise men were not the only ones to be warned. In fact, it says that when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. This is... Herod's response when he finds out he's been tricked. The scripture says that he became furious and then he commanded the murder of all the male children in Bethlehem of two years old and younger according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. So here's the question. What kind of monster would murder baby boys, let alone the promised Messiah. Here's the kind of monster that would do that. A usurping little king who demands his own little crown at all costs. A usurping little king who demands his own crown at all costs. Out of his desire to protect his own little crown, his own little kingdom, his own little dynasty, he left a trail of of bloodshed not only in in Bethlehem, but in his own household. His brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his wife, two of their sons, 46 members of the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. This guy was one. And you go, oh, I'm not that guy. Listen, it's just on the same arc of depravity. It's the same inner darkness giving full sail, full send. 
a man who demanded his own little crown. Um, Augustus Caesar said about Herod, it is better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. So get this, so when wise men from the east came asking, where's the one born king of the Jews? This is his trigger. No, no, no. No one's going to take this from me. That is true inner darkness. Here's a question. Why does Matthew include so much material that Matthew, uh, being a Jew himself, uh, a tax collector originally, and now converted and a follower of Christ, very knowledgeable of, of all of the scriptures and lived for three and a half years and then even some days afterwards with Jesus the Christ. Why include the account of Herod? None of the other gospel writers did this. What is, what is he doing in order to establish Jesus as the true and rightful king? I got three quick ideas about why the Herod account in Matthew chapter 2. The first is this. According to Revelation 12, written by another apostle named John, Herod was a human agent of Satan, the original little usurping king. The original usurper of God's kingdom, Lucifer. Revelation 12 says in, in very apocalyptic language, a great sign appeared in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with moon under her feet and a crown on her head and 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in the heavens. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And then watch what happens. And it's describing what's going on behind the scenes in the spirit realm in this account of, of Herod attempting to murder Jesus. It says, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he, when she bore her child, he might devour it. But watch the power of God, the one who gives dreams and warnings and, and the gospel and the scriptures and, and preachers and teachers and evangelists, people in your life because he loves you and he wants you to hear the truth and he wants you to come to the light. It says that God, when she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Nothing is going to thwart God's plan of the ages. He loves humanity far too much. Jesus had to come. He couldn't be murdered as a baby. The dragon was not going to prevail. Such is the battle for souls of men and women even today. But Herod is, an, is a, a, a little king, a, a human agent of the original usurping little king. Secondly, he's a depiction of collective humanity's rebellion against the one true king. In a few short years after this account, the mob is going to cry out, crucify, crucify. Pilate saying, I don't see anything wrong with this man. Why don't I just beat on him a little bit and release him? They go, no, crucify. In Matthew's gospel, they even cry out, his blood be upon us and our children. We want him dead. And so Pilate acquiesces passively, allowing an innocent man to be murdered. The Romans, the Jews, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, Pilate, Roman soldiers, all of them together, collectively taking part in the murder of Jesus. But guess what? They're not the only ones at fault. 
They're not the only, only the ones at fault. Herod is also, finally, a caricature of my own inner darkness. By caricature, I mean he's that, like that, that blown-out picture of who I could be if this inner darkness is not dealt with. If the light does not come to change me, I am he and he is me. Anytime I choose to sit on the throne of my life to make my own calls to say, no, I'm going to do it my way. My way is better. I'm going to sin. I'm going to violate the scripture. Anytime I choose to manipulate, to tread on others, to ensure that I actually come out on top, I am that usurping little king. This is the darkness within me, and this is the declaration of the scriptures. I want to take you back 600 years before the birth of Jesus the prophet Isaiah, a very, very godly man. Isaiah is a godly man, and yet he writes in this, this idea of collective sin and personal sin and shame. 500, 600 years before Jesus is executed, he writes it as if it's past tense. So clear is the prophecy, so certain is it that it's going to happen like this. He writes it in past tense. He goes, he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. Hey, whoa, time out. You're Isaiah. You're the man of God. You're the prophet. You don't have inner darkness. And he goes, oh yeah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, it says, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then St. Peter, the apostle, would, would write, he himself bore our sins. Peter, you're an apostle, you're a disciple, not you. You too? Yeah, me too. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The inner darkness is in me. How about you? Can I tell you in this account... There's another king, a very different king, the rightful one true king. And the beauty of this king is this, that instead of demanding his rightful crown, this king laid aside his infinite glorious crown in order to take up another one for you and me. Crown of thorns. Got a miserable bunch of usurping little kings that say, I am God. I will tell you how to do my life. And God himself saying, and I will take up your crown and die in your place. The true and rightful king taking up a crown of thorns. This is what the apostle Paul would say in his letter to the Philippian church. Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or translated, to be held on at all cost. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If I could quote the, the Christmas hymn, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more to die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And so what does God the Father do for Jesus Christ, the Son, his one and only Son? 
the scripture goes on to say that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. You want to know what another word for Lord is? King. And what the scripture is saying is that one day, even the original usurper himself and all other little usurpers, Herod the Great and everyone else will bow the knee to the one true king. And the time to do that is not to wait until it's too late. The time to do that is now. Let me ask you tonight, where do you find yourself in the story line? What, what part, what group of people or person do you resonate with? Okay, there's a one group that I didn't really go deep into, but I'm just going to point them out. They were the scribes and the chief priests. They're the religious insiders, and yet they don't give a flying rip. When they discover that someone thinks that the Messiah has been born, they don't care. They're, they're cold-hearted religious stiffs. They would actually join Herod's hatred for Jesus years later and call for his crucifixion. Then there's Herod himself, the usurping little king, masquerading as a God follower, masquerading as a Jew, but at the core committing committed to doing what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, committing to be his own little king, demanding his own little crown. And then there's the Magi, wise men from the east that are far from God in his promises, but hungry for him and his son. Humble outsiders responding to what little light they found, moving ever near to the one true king. And when they find him, they bow at his feet open up their treasures and pour them out in worship before this king. Where do you find yourself? Tonight we're going to light candles here in a moment, so if the band could come on up. I'm going to pick just a portion of, of one of the scriptures that was read for us by the Peart family from John chapter 1. And it's this, that the scripture says in John's gospel that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But anyone who does receive him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Tonight, where do you find yourself? I know I gave you three choices at first, but now I'm bringing it down to two. One, you're, you're wearing your own little crown, and you've never relinquished it. You don't know God. You don't have a relationship with the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Tonight, would you like to know him? Tonight, would you like to receive him? Tonight, would it be more than just a, a church service? Tonight, uh, would the Christ Mass be the moment that you actually receive your King? And what the scripture says in John 1, 11 and 12 is to believe on his name and to receive him into your life. Would you just pray that right now in your, in your heart, your head? Hey, dear God, I'm a sinner. I've got darkness within. It, it, I wear my own crown. I'm, I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my own soul, and I'm sick of it. I want the, tr the one true king. I want to come under your lordship. 
pray it in Jesus' name, amen. And then for those of us who have done that before, and yet somehow we keep grabbing for that little crown. We keep grabbing it and putting it back on and trying to run our own lives. How about tonight during the Christ Mass? That we fall at his feet and we fully surrender our lives and say, you are Lord, I am not. You can have my heart, you can have my wealth, you can have my riches, you can have everything that I am. And that we would give ourselves in worship to surrender our crowns before the king, the true and rightful king of kings and the Lord of lords. As we light our candles tonight, may this be a testimony that we have received the light of Christ in our hearts and that we have come under his lordship, his kingship, and it's his light that we hold up. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.